Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Equipped Bruised Tired podcast. I am one of your hosts, Bryce Krawczyk, and I'm here with my good friend and fellow lifter, Ryan Stinn. Um, and yeah, that's a podcast <laughs> thanks, intro. Thanks for, thanks for calling me a fellow lifter. That makes me feel good. I was, I was trying I've to come barely up. Barely been doing much lifting. I was trying to come up with uh, some sort of prestigious title, and that was the best. I, <laughs> the best that came to the top that of my worked. mind. I'm like, wait, what, what are we? Who are he we? Lifts weights sometimes. <laughs> I mean, that's why we're all here, right? Mostly. So, how's training been going, Ryan? Uh, well, I just started a new dev block this week, so it's fun to get off the pivot block and uh, got some singles on bench again. So, <clears throat> raw bench. We'll see if we can. Maybe push that PR a little higher. Maybe I don't know. Started with a two hundred five today, so felt pretty good. Oh, that's a fair bit above where you started last block, right? You were yeah, in the one nineties to start with. Yeah, I don't know if it was one ninety two or one ninety seven last block, but yeah, yeah, definitely a little bit higher. So, and then did some triples at one ninety two. So, which is I'm pretty sure the most I ever tripled. Um, so yeah, it was it was good. And then I did some really uh, exciting split squats. Right. Um, up to 40 kilos uh, and keeping with the decision to try and do some single leg work to make me healthy again. Right. Uh, you know, as I'm doing 40 kilo split squats, I'm thinking, yeah, Bryce and Eric, they're both like pulling 800 pounds for reps and I'm split squatting 40 kilos. So, you know, <laughs> to each their own different methods, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 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 We all, we all are headed in the same direction. I think <laughs> the vehicle of. we take is a slightly different. Yeah. It's very yeah. different. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's otherwise been good. So exciting, interesting stuff. This block, I think, uh, uh, Mike prescribed my my single leg work as basically choose your own adventure uh, okay. from eight to forty reps uh, at an eight oh. to a nine. So interesting. Yeah. So you could do uh, like eight singles at nine or something if you wanted. No, eight eight reps to forty reps. So per set. That's right. Uh, so four okay. sets of eight to forty reps. So you and just kind of like, go till you feel it. I'm not going to ever get to that 40. Let me just be honest with you. Like, <laughs> well, that's I feel like that's, that's a, just not going to happen. An insanely high top end for that. Yeah, but I'm glad he gave me that option, I guess. I suppose. <laughs> I wonder if anybody's ever taken him up on that and been like, yep, I did six sets of 40. 40 step ups or something. Yeah, like body weight stuff or something. Yeah. I, I, I walked up and down the stairs. There you go. That's what I did. That was my set, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Well, so. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. We'll see where this goes, and uh, hopefully, I can get uh, some things working better and get back doing some bilateral work next next block. So, how about you? You're, you're dedicated a full block to, to the single leg stuff. Yeah, and I, I yeah. assume we'll stick it out for a whole six week usual cycle since we're doing normal bench stuff here, and we'll see where that goes. And with the likeliness of competing, uh, who knows what when? Yeah, uh, I suppose if things start looking more solid uh for worlds we might maybe try it and things are feeling good for me i guess I'll, I'll try and switch to something more focused maybe a little sooner but right yeah i don't know play it by ear makes sense maybe push for some uh some big split squat prs by the end of the block or something yeah exactly a little one rm sorry mike i don't <laughs> supposed to do eight to 40 reps but i did a one rm on split squats <laughs> instead respect <laughs> I think that's something that Mike Boyle would really be into, though. Yeah. I don't know if you know who Mike Boyle is, but... I'm, I feel like I recognize the name, but I'm he's, Yeah, he's a, he's a coach down in the States, and he's a big proponent of um, 
uh, rear foot elevated split squats, also known mm-hmm. as Bulgarian split squats. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's uh, he's big on doing those heavy. I think so. I think Cal Dietz was a big big proponent of those too. Yeah. He was saying that people just like took their their back squat up like three hundred pounds from doing just like eccentric single leg SSB split squats. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. I don't know. (laughs) I think I've heard him talk about them in that light a few times, but yeah, yeah. Um, How's your training? Training for me has been. I trained twice this week. Oh, Uh, so two out of my out of my three sessions so far. Anyways, it's still Sunday. I could maybe redeem myself. Um, Yeah, just been kind of feeling pretty low motivation, honestly. Pretty distracted and and not uh, really not really having my head in the game. So uh, next week I'll try to get all three sessions in because I got a two week washout here. So, uh, but after really kind of blowing it out in that last week and, you know, hitting the all time squat PR and big bench PR and big deadlift double, I just was left kind of like, Oh man, I'm just, I got a couple of aches and pains and some things that I think just rest might be the best idea for some of these. So I've been taking it pretty damn easy. Um, yeah, I mean nothing, nothing really of note uh, in terms of training. Just kind of been going through the motions a little bit. So start turning things back around this next week, and then be ready for a new dev block the following. Yeah, I think that's something that lots of people kind of, especially newer lifters, take for granted. That sometimes you're not really. It's not like a motivational video when you're going to train. It's just like, yeah, I just gotta go put the work in, right? So yeah, yeah, that's, that's how it is. Especially when you have like big blowouts like that, and like. It's tough to carry that into, especially a pivot block or a a, a washout. So yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, and especially if you're aching and pain in a little bit, so make things feel yeah. better. Just had a couple of things that I think needed a little bit of a break. That last yeah. block was super productive, and in most cases was the most weight I've handled raw in a number of years. So I think it took its toll a little bit, and I'd like to be able to uh, be productive the next time I get into more serious training again. So take the, be back take in the gear. gear uh, you know, I don't know. I don't, Mike and I, I don't think I've had that conversation. Um, I've said it on here, I think before, but I'd be open to doing some shirted stuff and deadlift suit stuff, but I'm not sure I'd be cool squatting, uh, in my full suit, maybe some wraps, maybe straps down, straps down. I feel like that's just worse. <laughs> that's just more, more risky. It's it's so funny because I like I really have a soft spot for straps down work. It's I know a number of people who do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not terrible to me. Actually, I find it to be a really good way to um, acclimatize my upper back to handling mm-hmm. the heavier loads. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. To be, to be fair, I did it once as part of a warm up <laughs> and was like, "This is the worst," and have never done it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, maybe give it a little more shot than that, but perhaps, yeah, maybe there's something there. That I haven't uh, haven't quite sussed out. You said we had a question today. Yeah, to, yeah, we got uh, one question to our email um, answer. So we'll take a look at that. Uh, Mike R. We'll say Michael R. Uh, he had a question about cutting the material off of a bench shirt sleeve to make it shorter. So if you have long sleeves that's hanging below your elbow, and you're so uh, instead of having to like jam it up to be above mm-hmm. your elbow or pull the, the back of the shirt up to be above your elbow. He's wondering if you can cut that and still have it be IPF USAPL approved. Um, 
And I think that's get that custom done by the manufacturer, right? You know, I would think that is the official word. Um, but reading the rules, it does say that you can make modifications along original seam. And mm-hmm. at one point they did have a unwritten rule or something like that that said you could not shorten sleeves that had manufacturer to do that. Um, mm-hmm. But to me, this would fall under being an original seam modification. Right. And um, I'll just say that I know people have done it and have done it themselves or had a seamstress do it. And if you get it done in the same fashion, um, right. so the stitching looks the same. Uh, so that it follows essentially the same pattern as what the manufacturer right. would have done. Yeah. yeah. No one's really going to know the difference. Let's be honest with that. Um, right. I'm not saying that's the rule. I'm just saying that I know people that do it. Mm-hmm. Um, now myself, I just jam the extra material up above the elbow. Right. You can um, just kind of bunch it up to make the sleeve effectively shorter. Yeah. But you still now have the extra material. It does tend to get a little pinchy with that, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I just find it easier to do that rather than trying to get my sleeve shortened all the time. Um, because I don't know if I have really short, uh, humoruses, hum- I don't know what the plural of humorous is, but, uh, um, yeah, I, I've always had an issue with sleeves being too long for me. I think I wear my sleeves a little low too. Um, okay, yeah. So yeah, that's why I tend to have to uh, push the material above my elbow. But I, I think as long as it looks the same and you're not really changing the structure of the shirt, then I shouldn't be have any issue with it being approved still. Now, I do know if you order a shirt from Titan, you can just ask them to have the sleeve shortened and they'll do that for right. you. Right. Uh, I have done that in the past as well. So um, the same with, uh, I think Inzer will do the same thing. I've, I've had the sleeves ordered, shortened. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it well, shouldn't I've seen, be an issue. I've seen people with custom shirts uh, with the sleeves quite short before. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was something that they had done by Titan uh, right. as part of like a custom shirt. Um, yeah, and I, I don't even really have much to say on that because I've never uh, never approached or navigated that question before. So I think yeah. that about sums it up there. I would say if you are if you have something that can adequately do the work and keep it you know, as original as possible, you should be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been through a lot of equipment checks and I've never had someone uh, closely inspect my, my hemming on my, my shirt sleeves. I have actually seen someone lift with an unhemmed shirt sleeve before but that really uh, that is illegal I, I, you definitely have to have that i think folded back over to be original right so they're so, going to make that original design yeah i would say it's probably safer to having that rather than having the freedom there uh, yeah but yeah i've seen it get away i've got get through a quick inject before so hmm. but yeah that was our only real question this week so if you have any more feel free to uh, shoot us an email at equippedbruisetired at gmail.com and or leave one on our youtube uh or just send me or bryce something on instagram uh, yep. i'm stindler, stindler uh, on instagram and uh, s-t-i-n-n-d-l-e-r and bryce is obviously bryce underscore cbb yep that's the one so yeah reach out if you have some questions sweet all right and uh with that we'll toss it over to our interview our guest today really i don't think needs much of an introduction we had the pleasure of sitting down with Mike Tashir for uh, a good little chat. We went through a number of things, including uh, going through some of the sort of nuances of equipped programming. Um, he backed me up that reps and gear are good, so uh, y'all can just chew on that before you even get started here. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no spoilers. So I, I think that one of the things I really enjoyed about our combo with Mike was that we got to talk to him more about uh, being an athlete, I think was something that we were able to touch on a lot with him and his experiences as an athlete and learning equipment when there was a time or, or during a time where there was not a lot of other resources. So uh, kind of wading through uh, all of the conventional information, figuring out what worked for him, and uh, which is, has led to, I think, the way that he programs maybe a little bit unconventionally for his equipped lifters now. Anyways, um, Mike's one of the few people who has won the World Games. And in terms of uh, North American lifters, I think it's a pretty short list. And yeah, is a coach to a great many number of amazing athletes. So uh, yeah, we'll toss it over to that and hope everybody that uh, is tuned in really enjoys the episode. Episode, <laughs> And we'll see everybody in the next one. Mm. Um, but yeah, so we're here to talk equipped lifting with one of the guys who's been very, very successful at both coaching and doing the equipped lifting himself. So we're uh, both really excited to have you on, man. Yeah, happy to be here. Um, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it's, it's kind of a neat opportunity to talk to both of you guys at the same time, too. You know, I think that's kind of it's kind of neat, like just having the equip podcast and then, you know, you guys doing a, an equip podcast together, I think is a, is a cool, uh, it's a cool vibe. Yeah. Well, especially since I started shaving my head and growing my beard out. <laughs> so now Ryan and I are pretty much indistinguishable from one another. Yeah. Basically. That's why I wear my glasses. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not allowed to wear mine on the podcast. <laughs> um, so, I, like, I don't really think you need a whole lot of introduction. I think most people probably know who Mike Tashir is and some of the things that uh, that you've managed to do. Um, if they don't, maybe I can impress them with my wit during the course <laughs> of this conversation. There you go, exactly. You got a reason to Google him afterwards. So we've talked about this with a number of athletes and we've been fortunate enough to have a number of athletes who have gone, but, um, you know, obviously one of the big things we wanted to talk about a little bit was your, your world games experience. Now you actually won the world games, right? Um, I did. Yeah. Ryan specifically had a question about how much you liked the hotel. <laughs> Cause apparently it was a pretty dope hotel. Um, but maybe you could just kind of like paint the scene for how that went and, and kind of tell us uh, a little bit about that experience for you. I mean, as I look back on it now, <clears throat> it was one of those things where, I don't know. So I was, that was 2009. So I was 24 um, at the time. And I look back on it and think, man, I was really kind of too young and dumb to appreciate what was going on. Like, I mean, you know, it's a big deal, but like in hindsight, I, I look back on it and think like, and I kind of didn't get it, you know? Okay. Um, yeah, that had been uh, definitely the furthest I'd ever traveled. And, and one of my, one of the earlier international experiences that I'd had, you know? So, yeah. you know, just things that, I remember some things seemed strange at the time. Uh, like I remember the the hotel uh, you mentioned the hotel I, I don't remember too much about it being nice or not nice but I remember thinking that um, like in the bathroom 
there was like a shower head, but there wasn't like a shower. <laughs> you know, it was like a drain in the middle of the floor. And I remember thinking like how weird that was. I mean, I guess it is kind of kind of strange, but that wouldn't make me like I, that wouldn't make the notes at this point in my life, you know, right. but that was part of part of the notes, I guess. You guys out for breakfast. This, like, yeah, right? you guys do. <laughs> Yeah, yeah it, was, it was. Go ahead, though. The only thing I remember about the hotel, and I think um, athlete rooms were probably better. Like, I went as a coach. Uh-huh. Um, so, myself and the other Canadian coach were in a room together. And uh, we had, like, almost like bunks sort of thing. Like, there's like four little shelves yeah. you kind of slept on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's. I remember it was the first hotel I'd ever been with, like, that was just like hard, like, tile floor. And there's just a smell throughout the whole hotel that like it's still <laughs> kind of burned into my brain. And uh, uh, yeah, it's I don't know. It, it was also my first time ever traveling uh, outside yeah. of Canada. So that's probably why it's so uh, ingrained in me. But yeah, it's definitely things I remember. And I remember walking to um, the other hotel, whatever it was called for lunch, for the lunch buffet. And being like, man, some people get to stay at this hotel. This is way nicer than our hotel. <laughs> See, I, I don't think that our the hotel I was at was I don't know anything really all that special, but I do remember that they had uh, volunteers from the local university that were posted down in the lobby, like twenty four seven, who would do translation, who would order you a taxi if you needed to go somewhere, uh, just generally there to help, you know, and in a place where the language barrier. So that was, I don't know if we said yet, but that was in uh, Kaohsiung City in Taiwan. And uh, the language barrier for all of us was pretty stark. Uh, so that was really, really helpful and thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, I'm literally still friends with some of those volunteers on Facebook and Instagram. Right? Yeah. Like, it's crazy. So <laughs> one of the people from that trip, so my wife, Ayana, didn't go on the trip, um, but she is somehow facebook friends with one of the volunteers <laughs> who, who was there and that's like her only friend on facebook that she doesn't know like for real in real life yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's like awesome. that one person in town <laughs> so you mentioned it there but you were you were 24 when you did that was, yeah yeah and so how long like just to to kind of paint a timeline here how long into your lifting career was that was that pretty early on that you found that much success and kind of like you could call it a, a sort of meteoric rise or like had you been chipping away for 15 years already uh, competing and that kind of stuff um i was kind of i suppose it depends a lot on definitions for different things so i mm-hmm. started lifting when i was 12 and um, found myself to be pretty good at it pretty early on. Um, I didn't compete though. Uh, there were a couple like competitions between football teams that you know aren't really anything. Um, but my first real competition wasn't until I got into college. Uh, so I would have been you know 18, 19 years old uh, by the time I did my first competition. Mm-hmm. And um, I went through uh, like my collegiate years, uh, honestly bombing out a lot. <laughs> so okay. 
I went to collegiate nationals all four years that I was in college and bombed out three times. Uh, So three out of four years bombed out of collegiate nationals and uh, had to go to junior nationals one year. It's kind of a a workaround to try to get to the junior world competition. Mm. Um, But, I mean, I chalk that up as being self-taught on a lot of it. Uh, Just never had mentors that were close by. And really, like in my university time, that was... I was somewhat close. Uh, so the Air Force Academy is in Colorado Springs, and that's about an hour drive from Denver. And uh, Dan Gaudreau lives in Denver, and you know, Blaine talks about Dan. That uh, Dan helped bring up Blaine as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so occasionally, I would make the trip up to Denver uh, to get help from Dan. But it's a combination of like going two to three times a year is just not that much, and also you know, thinking that you know a lot of stuff when you're 20 years old and, you know, you really don't know as much as you think. Um, so it was kind of a lot of those led to uh, some hard lessons in the early years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did manage to, um, I, I was strong, which is useful, you know, and uh, um, managed to win some junior national competitions and I went to junior worlds in 2006 and uh, so I knew that I could compete at a international level mm-hmm. uh, and then after I left uh, university that's when I started competing competing at the open level and um, that would have been 2007 so well 2008 really so 2008 is when I started competing in the open and then 2009 is when I went to the World Games in Taiwan. Hmm. So that's kind of the competition history, I suppose. So I'd been I'd done a fair bit of competing, uh, not a lot successfully. <laughs> <laughs> what? So what was it about those competitions? Was it consistently one thing that that kind of got you, or was it a, a variety of things throughout those meets? Uh, it was the bench. So yeah. bench was always uh, the thing that I, I had a few close calls squatting, uh, but bench was always the difficulty. And and like, to be honest, I don't really know even now why that was, mm-hmm. you know, that you pick a number that you think, you know, you do it in training, you think like, yeah, I got this, you know. Um, but then, you know, you show up to the competition and it doesn't work the same way. But um it was it was a learning curve. I mean, my dad used to tease me a little bit about it and say, like, there's three reasons for bombing out of a competition, and all three of them are that you open too heavy. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, all right, fair enough, you know. Like, I mean, but... But it is a fine line with equipped, right? Like, there's only so much of a range you have to open where you can touch and, you know, not bomb. <laughs> Of course, that yeah. nice five kilo range you have. <laughs> right. And when you first started competing, was that were your first competitions equipped? I'm imagining so, right? Because that was kind of how competitions went at the time. Yes and no. Um, one of my first competitions was the the Service Academy Tri Service Meet, which mm-hmm. uh, if you ever talk to Matt Gary about it, he'll he'll like to bring that up because. He actually was at that competition. Neither one of us knew the other at the time, but he beat me in that competition. So the key, oh, he see. likes he likes to bring that one up. Um, 
However, he was competing equipped, and I was not. Ah, <laughs> so, uh, okay, okay. So, uh, well, I put a squat suit on, like some random squat suit that I found for my third attempt squat. Uh, <laughs> it was some, something like that, you know. Nice. Um, but, yeah, not, not really a refined competitor at those times. <laughs> you know? Right. Oh, here's a squat suit. I guess I'll put that on. Right. We'll just put it on for the third and then go up another 5% from what you were planning. Man, I could tell you stories about being just an idiot with equipment, you know, like thinking. That's what we're here for, I think. uh, Yeah, well, I mean, the the things that you think when you don't have anybody there to tell you any better, you know. Right. Like, I remember getting this this squat suit. And and just to clarify, like, the, the stuff that I had learned about equipment had been mostly through reading magazines about powerlifting, you know. So it's like. Not much at all. Uh, I knew kind of how it was supposed to work. Uh, I get the visuals of it, but, you know, all right, I can figure this out. Uh, so I get this squat suit, and I get the thing on, and I start squatting with it, and uh, um, I'm getting about halfway down, you know. And so you just keep loading it up, you know, load up another plate. And it, I mean, at the time, I was maybe a, you know, 600 650 raw squatter like low 600s raw squatting and you know i just keep adding a plate and i keep only getting about halfway down never more you know and i got up to like 850 pounds you know still only getting about halfway you know and that took like the entire training session and uh um, it was way more than i'd ever had on my back before by by far you know only getting about halfway down and that was about all we had time for so i remember i was sitting in my room later training for the collegiate nationals one year and i was thinking um man you know i keep loading up this weight and only getting about halfway down you know and i know that if i can only get about halfway down it just takes more weight to push me down the hole right and and a squat suit is essentially like a spring so the harder you push it down the harder it's going to push back up so you know yeah that should work out i'm i might squat a thousand pounds at this meet you know yeah. i wonder it, 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 like first of all let's stop there for a second because that's dumb enough <laughs> by itself you know but i thought the next thought is even better because i go i wonder if they'll have enough weight at this competition that i'm about to go to you know what? I better email the meat director just to make sure that he's got enough weight there. <laughs> so I sent him an email that was like, hey, I'm coming to your competition in a couple of weeks and I'm going to squat a thousand pounds. I just want to make sure that you've got enough weight there for me. <laughs> and I thank God that he never replied to that email. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's not like at that point in time you could look around at the, the like abundancy of resources that are plastered all over the Internet. Right. And be I mean, like, oh, okay, that's not how that works. But definitely a different time. Definitely yeah. a different time. And just yeah. out of like curiosity, do you actually remember what squat suit it was? Like, what what kind of squat suit you're wearing? Um, not offhand. No, not offhand. I do remember that it didn't last. It didn't make it to that competition. Like, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I was kept kept fiddling with it and trying to get it to work and and at some point like the strap just completely came unraveled and uh you know so i'm broke college kid you know and uh, i remember calling dan and because i knew that he sold uh titan equipment and he had some on hand 
and uh, I remember asking him, you know, what he could do, like if, if, you know, if I could buy some equipment from him or anything like that, if he had anything used even. Or, and uh, he set me up with with a kit, you know, just like here, you take this, and he he gave it to me. And uh, you know, I mean, I think he saw me as a strong kid that had potential and was just trying to trying to throw me a bone and. Mm-hmm. That helped because uh, that was the 2005 Collegiate Nationals, which was the only one that I won. <laughs> so I showed up that year and won Collegiate Nationals. And it was either bomb or win kind of thing. It, well, yeah, I mean, I was kind of in that. I was in that bracket where uh, I, it was contested. I don't want to make it sound like I was just way ahead right, of everyone right. else, but it it came down to some last deadlifts at that at that meet, which was pretty fun. Yeah. Um, but, and do yeah. you remember what you squatted? Like 750. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, not bad, but when you're no. talking about like, oh, I'm going to do 1,000, like 750 <laughs> doesn't sound like that much. But <laughs> uh, um, So to go back to, to World Games for a sec, you ended up winning that as well, right? Does that yeah. Was yeah. that something that you kind of went in thinking was possible? Did you kind of know where you sat through? And that was your goal, or was that something where the stars kind of aligned on that day, and you were able to 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 go for it? I don't remember being that focused on placements or anything. Um, I I knew that the competition was done kind of with these uh, open weight classes, so you know it's a heavyweight, lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight competition, and it's done on Wilkes and just the way that it was done at the time with the weight class delineations, probably the person is probably still going to take the biggest total to win, uh, even on points, you know, and, and that is how it uh, turned out. Uh, I knew that uh, Alexander Shuppel, uh, who had just kind of eked out a gold medal, uh, and I was a, a silver medalist at the 2008 world championships i knew he would be there um but i don't remember focusing that much like thinking like hey i might win this or or thinking really anything about placing um which you know from a mental standpoint like later on in my lifting that became a lot more of a focus and looking back on it now i feel like it was a distraction like focusing really hard on the placement i feel like led to maybe subpar results, but definitely sub sub high experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my satisfaction with my competition went down as my focus on placing uh, went up. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I suppose if there's a lesson to be learned from that, it's to focus on your performance and and focus on your lifting not to say like you completely ignore placing or you know nobody thinks in extremes for the most part but yeah that's gonna happen but yeah my dog so. is gonna bark probably so yeah. quarantine life yeah. <laughs> yeah so focusing on performances and and uh our own lifting i think that's mm-hmm. that's the way to go and, and placing can kind of take care of itself 
So, uh, kind of going off that, Blaine um, has said to me that to him, uh, a title is more important than a record. So winning worlds is more important than getting a world record. And he says the record will be beaten, but you'll always have won that championship. And I, I took that, I, that was really interesting to me because as someone who's never set a world record before, you know, or won a world either. But um, to me, like the record in my head is more important. And I'm just wondering what kind of like your thoughts would, would be on around that. Hmm. I suppose if I was in a position, you know, like, you know, you're in a third deadlift position and you pull something for the win or you pull something more for a world record, then I would take the win. Um, and even if the situation was reversed, even if it took more to go for the win, yeah, I think I would probably go for the win. Um, but it does it does change that calculus a little bit, the way the rules have changed now, because it used to be that you could set world records at you know, national meets or at least regional meets, but now with world records being only set at worlds, then you know people used to say like well you could set you could set that record at a different meet you could go to a regional meet and set that record if you want mm-hmm. you know but you can only win a world championship at worlds and and like to blaine's point like you win that and it's yours forever you've all you've always won mm-hmm. um but at the same time like you've always held the record as well you know and with records the change in rules like you can't set the record anytime you want it's got to be at a certain meet and so yeah i don't know it it does change things and i think that was kind of a way of thinking that i came up with too like i came up with coaches kind of saying that to me as well like go for the win you always have the win you can set the record else elsewhere um but it might just take a while for that thinking to re-reason itself you know i don't know i hadn't given it a whole lot of consideration lately (laughs) fair and i totally get like in a situation where i'm coaching i'm probably going to coach someone to go for the win and not for the record right assuming it's not out of hand but yeah um, see that's what i that's what i would wonder as well like i mean you say that that's what you would do as, as a coach. So I think that's uh, probably indicative of, of where your values are at. And yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But when I sit back now, it's like thinking about it, it's like, well, if I look back, if I look at something, I'll probably look at the record book, right? Mm-hmm. Even historically record book. So I'm going to see someone's name in the records more than I'm going to go look at maybe the 2008 world championship results to see who won that. Sure. I don't, it's, so it's just kind of, it's, I don't know. It's just an interesting thing that Blaine said that kind of made me think about it like that. Well, Blaine's a perfect example for this because in, uh, in 2012 was the first classic world it was the classic world cup, but we all knew what it was. You know, it's the first world championship. It's not official, but you know, whatever we know. Anyway, we, so we show up and, and I remember talking with Blaine afterwards because he won that competition. And I remember saying to him like how cool I thought it was like, you're the first, you know, raw world champion in the super heavyweight division. Like 
that's that seems like something special to me you know and something that can never be taken away you know mm-hmm. um, so I think that is true whether it's the first worlds or the 50th worlds um, but you know I, I see your point as well and, and I mean really kind of what we're talking about a little bit, a little bit it's clout right so does it matter too much whether you say like, "Hey, I was a world champion," or "Hey, I was a world record holder"? Like, uh, which one carries more weight with the the average person? Uh, I don't know if they, I don't know if there's much difference. You know? Yeah, I think I think the 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 clout, if that's if that's well, if that's what we're gonna call it, is more with the the championship because obviously that's the that's the combination of the three lifts. World record may only be one lift. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the way I've looked at it. See, and that's kind of like to your point about the three lifts. Like to me, a total world record is like mm-hmm. the the highest accomplishment. You might win a world championship, like say like 2008 Worlds, where Russia wasn't there. Um, like Rhea placed silver that year because Russia wasn't there, or at least that asterisk is always going to be in your head, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you might say, you know, I got silver at Worlds and no one else knows the difference. But in your head, you might know that, well, you know, if if Russia had showed up, if Ukraine hadn't bombed, but to set a total world record, like that's the best total that's ever been hit at that weight. So, yeah, um, that's true. That's true. I wonder, I wonder if it's changed. It, see, it would be interesting to me to like to track the change in these perceptions over the years, like when they change the weight classes and essentially start the record books over again if that changes people's perception of what the records are you know and then there's like this flurry of, of records that get set over the next several years you know more than usual and uh, I wonder if that changes perceptions I, I really don't know and I don't have much intuition around it either yeah. and then you have things like the 120 equipped squat record that is still a standard from how many years ago yeah I <laughs> do, do you remember exactly how they set those standards? I want to say that they were. No idea that was before my time. Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, yeah, I I think they took the current like the historic records and basically said like closest to that kind of counts. So I don't know if the old 125 record was around that because what's the standard? 425. Four. It might even be 430. So I don't the know if that's 125 the... record would have been uh, Kirk's at a thousand whatever he did, mm, right? You know, mm-hmm. and I mean obviously the dude was something special when it came to squatting. So if it was something like that, then maybe that. But I know they use the old classes to try to generate the new classes, yeah. and in some cases they're really comparable. Obviously, 82 and a half to 83, like yeah. basically yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so kind of going back to those old days, the, the world games days, um, when I got into the sport, there was a team that kind of walked around in the USA and, uh, they always wearing the green shirts. So what did, it, what did it mean to kind of be on, on team green back in the, back in the day? I mean, so quest nutrition, um, was a company that was run by Sherman Ledford and 
he got in touch with me at collegiate nationals and he did this a lot at, at team nationals, junior nationals, collegiate nationals, uh, finding kids that were talented and, you know, trying to show them some support, trying to give them some guidance, um, you know, basically give them a reason to stay in the sport and cultivate some talent. And, uh, so there was a lot around that, you know, that he, built up some teams doing that, you know, and, and they would have a team at um, junior nationals and um, things like that and, and uh, did really well. I don't remember all the the years, but, you know, we had these T-shirts that, that had all the years that, that Quest uh, won the team competitions and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, he put together some, some really fantastic teams, and I think a lot of uh, skilled lifters got their start there. Um, as I kind of veered off toward more raw lifting uh, after the World Games, um, that just wasn't that interesting uh, to Sherman and to, to Quest in general. Um, and we've kind of just kind of lost touch a little bit, but you know, I just still see him around competitions and, and uh, try, to, try to catch up when we get a chance to, but um, it was, it was nice to have the support that he provided and just a sounding board a lot of times, you know, um, things that, things that should seem obvious to someone who competes in a sport like powerlifting, but aren't obvious if you're teaching yourself how to do powerlifting from reading magazines, mm -hmm. it's, it's helpful <laughs> to have somebody to talk to about the, some of these different ideas and stuff like that. I remember one conversation in particular, um, you know, I was, I was talking with him about like some of my aspirations and my attitude toward training and, and kind of wanting to leave no stone unturned. And he had been trying to talk me into using a deadlift suit for a long time. And I was just resistant to the idea. Um, uh, and you know, we were just talking about competing and competitive aspirations. And I was, telling him this story about, you know, like I want to you know, do everything I can to be the best that I can to, you know, for the most part. And he was like, yeah, you, you say that, but you don't want to try a deadlift suit. <laughs> Fine. I'll try a deadlift suit. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so it, it was, it was good to have sounding boards and, and people who are willing to push back on some of your ideas and tell you when you're kind of going off the deep end or, like, yeah, you, you think that, and that may be true for multiply powerlifting, but that doesn't apply so much here. And, you know, right. just things like that, things that I wouldn't have understood otherwise. Um, so kind of going, we're, we're talking a lot of history here because I guess we want to focus on equipped, but we'll get maybe into equipped programming a bit more. But uh, in 2007, uh, and um, you hit a PR total of uh, 1,002.5. At the and then at the Arnold uh, in 2008, about four months later, uh, you hit 1062 and a half, um, which is you know pretty substantial improvement. I think about four months. So do you remember any of the changes you kind of made in that? Maybe you put a deadlift suit on um, that kind of, <laughs> or or if you have the probably have a training log somewhere you could pull out to try and. I probably do have a training log. It's probably packed up with my household goods, but I definitely keep all that stuff. But uh, if I remember right. I'd have to go back and look at the competition results. 
I think I had a really good bench, probably my best ever bench at the 2008 Arnold as well. Uh, my bench press, the, the most I benched in competition, I think, was 633 pounds. And uh, like I did that once and didn't really come that close to it again. And I'd, I'd done, looking back on it, my relationship with the bench shirt was kind of, a lot of ups and downs as, as is for all, a lot of us, you know, yeah, um, I feel you there. Yeah. Like in competition, it was rough going. Uh, and then like I had this one out of nowhere, you know, close to middle 600 bench and then not, but then in training, um, I could manage a lot more than that on a consistent basis. You know, I, I remember in training for a while I was, taking close to 700 pounds, not touching, which is a pretty important uh, stipulation to add in there, but <laughs> but able to press it. And you would start to you think like, well, you know, if you can get it within, you know, an inch, two inches of touching, then it's at least in the sphere of possibility. And then you go to a competition and bench 606 and you go, what, what happened? <laughs> you know? um, so I think a lot of it had to do with the bench shirt, you know, and, and just if you can get that thing to, to hit right now, all of a sudden your total is looking a lot better, you know, and it's more than just that, you know, you have a good squat and a good deadlift to go with it. But, um, the, the bench always seemed the most volatile to me. Yeah. Well, that's why I opened raw at my first equipped worlds and received a lot of flack from Rhea for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for me, I I made the transition into equipped lifting uh, just three years ago, and had done a couple of years of, of raw lifting before that. And one of the one of the few resources that I was able to find in terms of like, how do you put a bench shirt on? How do you take a bench shirt off? How do you do any of this stuff I've never done before? Uh, was finding some really old YouTube videos of yours, um, and and watching you talking about putting a shirt on, taking a shirt off, uh, some tips for self handoffs, uh, and that kind of stuff. What drove you to, to make those in that, like at that point in time, was it, you know, that there wasn't anything like that or were you coaching athletes that that was specifically for, um, like what was your, what was your thought process behind that? So it was, it was a necessity for me, uh, to, to figure it out, I guess, because I was training by myself, um, mm -hmm the video that you're talking about was shot at the North Dakota YMCA. It's a nice little time capsule video. Like you look back on 24 year old Mike or something like yeah. that. But, uh, um, I was training mostly in my garage by myself and, you know, well, I've got to figure this out. Like, how am I going to train equipment? You know, um, it's just a, a necessity. And I remember coming across, uh, this video of a Japanese lifter who rolled his bench shirt in a specific way so that he could wiggle into it and just pull it down. And he had it for the most part on just by himself. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that being a real light bulb moment. And that's kind of the technique that I show in that, in that video. It's called solo shirt work, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, but so anyway, back up for a minute. So, I come across this video and I watch this Japanese lifter do it and I have this light bulb moment. I'm like, 
oh my God, that's how, that's how you would do it. That's how it would work. So I go to the closet, I get out my bench shirt and I roll it, slide the thing up my arms, duck my head under, zip, pull the, pull the tail of the shirt. It's down I'm like, holy shit, I got this thing on. There it is. It's on now. How do I get it off? <laughs> it's going to say, I feel like I know where this is going. And, uh, I was home by myself at the time. So I remember having to, I was like sitting there in my bench shirt for like 45 minutes waiting for my wife to get home from work. It's like, can you help me? <laughs> so learn how to get it off by yourself came later. <laughs> yeah. Also out of necessity. Right. 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 Um, so at that time you were doing the majority of your training at home. Yeah. And then you would just kind of go to the gym whenever you needed a Sinead O'Connor ballad or okay. <laughs> whenever it was convenient. So like I, I did this, it took me a while to get my, uh, home set up, put together. Mm -hmm. Um, but what you're talking about, the, the, uh, I've got a video of me squatting, uh, 900 double with Sinead O'Connor in the background. That was mm -hmm. just prior to me getting my home gym set up. Okay. Um, so you did train <laughs> at a commercial gym, like yeah. somewhat extensively. Yeah, that was actually, when I first got there, that was the closest I've ever been to getting kicked out of a gym, uh, which okay. used to, another bit of history, right? Like mm -hmm. that used to happen pretty regularly to powerlifters who would right. go to commercial gyms. You know, it would be like, hey, there's no deadlifting in here. And I think a lot of powerlifters acted kind of like assholes and mm -hmm. uh, like in all my time traveling and lifting in commercial gyms, I never had a problem except for this one time. And it's that this was at the the North Dakota YMCA, and they have the weight room on the second floor of this giant building, you know. And so I'm in there, and I'm deadlifting. And I was deadlifting. It, it was like middle 700-pound range. So it's enough weight. And they've got a deadlift platform and everything. It's, deadlifting is definitely okay here. But it's enough weight that when you put the bar down in any sort of sensible fashion – uh, on the second floor, you get these shock waves that go across the entire building and it makes you feel like the building's going to collapse. And right. so, uh, Timmy personal trainer came over and, uh, you know, started demanding that I'd set the bar down more gently. And, you know, well, I am setting the bar down gently. Well, no, you're not. I'm see, this is what's happening and things escalated and it ends up with me yelling at him, why don't you get up here and show me how to put the bar down more gently, <laughs> you know? And, um, another guy who was also, a, he's a, a local there, also a powerlifter. His name's Bob Bruner. Uh, he, uh, he stepped in and intervened cause he, he knew the guy and, okay, and yeah. he could also see that I knew what I was doing. I wasn't just some jerk who was dropping weights. And, uh, so he was like, Hey, you know, kind of calm things down and, and everything turned out fine. Bob, Bob became a friend after that. And that was really cool. But, uh, yeah, that another old days story, I guess. <laughs> no, that's perfect. Um, so part of the reason I wanted to ask about that was, I mean, obviously you, you did things like middle 700 deadlifts, uh, at commercial gyms and 900 pound doubles at commercial gyms. <laughs> Were you of that, uh, that sort of school of thought that like, you know, using that equipment was a big detriment to you, you know, using maybe a subpar bar or something less than what you would normally have at home or were gyms 
better equipped? Like, did you notice any difference? Do you think you would now? Definitely notice the difference. And I mean, it was kind of the thing I didn't think about too much because it wasn't really an option. You know, Mm -hmm. I would have used better equipment if I was able to, uh, but just most of the time it wasn't available. Um, But I remember talking to Sherman again and, and, uh, I guess he had been talking to some people who were telling him like, man, can you imagine how much better Mike would, would be if he would, was lifting at a real gym that didn't play Senate O'Connor. (laughs) (laughs) And, and he tells him like, well, do you ever think that maybe that's why he's, he's doing as well as he's doing is because he's not relying on those, it doesn't have to be the perfect hype song to mm. to go out and, and lift weights, you know. But and I, you know, I remember talking to uh, Brian Siders one year as well, who was uh, quick Brian story. Um, he uh, worked all day. He worked as a, a, a psychologist in a prison, and uh, then he'd get home in the afternoon and he took care of his daughter. And uh, once he got his daughter put to bed in the evening, that's when he would go train. And his training sessions were like four hours long. So he'd yeah. start training at like 10 p.m. and train to like two in the morning, right? Yeah. And so he's in his garage, you know, deadlifting at two in the morning. You know, and neighbors tend not to like that. Right. You know? So I remember him telling me that he had to change up his training so that he was doing basically like really slow negatives for his deadlifts. So it didn't cause any noise or anything like that. And I was mm-hmm. like, man, that sucks. Sorry, you've got to deal with that. And he's like, no, actually, I think my deadlift is better. Like it feels better than it ever has, you know, and I can't point to anything else. So it seems like maybe that's it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, well, you know, sometimes the constraints, constraints make the path more clear, you know? Totally. I think that's a cool perspective and, and maybe something that more people could spend more time thinking about perhaps yeah i mean to, to i guess go back on offer the other perspective as well yeah at the 2013 uh worlds the classic worlds um i had been training all my deadlifts on a uh texas power bar mm-hmm. uh, which is a you know stiff bar i guess by by most standards it's definitely not a deadlift bar, uh, but it's yeah. a 28 millimeter bar. So it's got a little bit more flex and it's a little bit narrower than the Elico, which is 29 millimeter. Um, so I, it had never caused any problems before ever, uh, but I showed up at the 2013 Worlds and all of a sudden had grip problems and I dropped right. two, two deadlifts and missed out on a world championship because of it. Hmm. Um, and after that, I got an Alico bar and started training on a 29 millimeter bar yeah. and the grip problem, it, it's not like it went away completely, but it definitely lessened a lot, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think some differences in equipment are more consequential than others, you know? Yeah. But I mean, if all you've got is a 28 millimeter bar, then you're going to train on a 28 millimeter bar and make the best of it. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think we wanted to talk a little bit about equipped programming and obviously you are a coach, (laughs) um, to, to put it very lightly. Um, but to start off with, 
I need. <laughs> Can you please just back me up that reps and gear are good and cool and people should do them? Yeah, I'll back you up on that for sure, hundred percent. It's now, been a recurring topic. Cool and good, and people should do them. I would yeah. agree with all of those. I'll also note that you didn't say fun or uh, enjoyable or <laughs> any anything like that. They're I'm not, not any of you those, agree to that. No, right, not any of those things. But effective, yeah, I would say it's effective. Um, I had a, a neat conversation. Uh, with Natalie Hansen. Well, you were there for that as well, Bryce. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, she's definitely of a differing opinion and she's got good reasons for, for thinking that like it, it is wear and tear. It's more reps on your equipment and things like that. Mm-hmm. However, I think that there's trade-offs to everything. And, you know, those are some of the downsides to doing reps in your equipment, but some of the upsides are that you can learn the groove a little bit better uh, you get a little bit more of a, a feel for where the like the resistance bubble is at. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit more volume and it can teach you something about touching because you know by the third, fourth, fifth rep, you're effing tired and you're at, lo and behold, you can get that bar a little bit further to your chest than you could on the first rep. Somehow, yeah. you know, somehow that happens. So I think there's some important benefits for it. And, you know, like anything else, you're going to have to weigh that out uh, to figure out, you know, what's the best scenario for it. But definitely uh, is a useful tool and something I find myself reaching for quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So when you first started incorporating those, I'm imagining that was in your own training. Yeah. Yeah. Now, was that at the time, was that a trend that you kind of had to buck to to go that direction? Or was that something where you just, we're doing it and then found out later that nobody else likes to do that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a good question. Like, is it, is it current common practice to only I think do it's singles in gear? Kind of contested like singles, doubles. I don't think many people go above okay. like maybe a triple straps down. Uh, yeah. But that's my limited scope of things. No, th- th- that seems pretty normal. Say- right? Yeah. I would say more in bench, probably you'll see more reps mm-hmm. maybe rather than especially like, yeah, full gear squats, full gear straps uh, up knee wraps. sets of five are not common. I think I can say that confidently. Yeah. yeah even when they're programmed for me by Mike, <laughs> I'm pretty certain out of the six weeks in the block, I probably wrote, uh, back's not feeling so good. Not didn't do set of five. Cause it would be like three lead up singles. Then a drop back set of five. And by the time I finished my singles, my back would always feel a little kank, janky. And I, I think I might have done like one or two weeks of five. And it, it, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's just misery. Yeah, it is. It, it is definitely miserable. And it's not, there, there's very little that's like requirements, you know, yeah. training wise, you know, that stuff that can't be worked around. So yeah, definitely. And And I would, I would agree with you guys that, you know, doing fives in equipment has always been our rarity. Uh, but, you know, doubles and triples didn't seem to be a rarity. And I think kind of the way that most people were doing it before would be, um, especially in the squat, more incremental. You know, that, you know, your first couple weeks when you were doing your, you know, your, your 10, eight weeks would be raw and then your 
six, five weeks would be uh, with knee wraps or something. Then you go straps down and then you go straps up with or straps down with wraps and then straps up with wraps or had, different people had different gear progressions because I don't think there's like one fixed way of doing that gear progression, but you would add equipment as the reps decreased in the normal like periodized program. Um, but that, that I suppose that was something that I bucked. Uh, just that I would try to do more full gear stuff more often. Mm -hmm. uh, or at least for me in the squat, like adding knee wraps was kind of a, a last thing. Like I would go straps up without wraps uh, pretty regularly. Okay. Uh, straps down never felt like very much to me. It, you know, felt like it, it did, just didn't feel like the same movement. Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think my own like sort of attraction and fascination with the reps and gear is partially because I think for somebody in my circumstance where you're coming into equipped lifting with a pretty decent base of movement and strength, it was a really effective way for me to learn the equipment. And I think that's where part of my like personal kind of argument behind it is for people who have maybe already got some experience lifting and want to get more used to the equipment a little bit quicker, you know, accumulating more reps probably going to lead to that proficiency coming faster. Um, and also because, yeah, a lot of people seem to like roll their eyes and say that you can't do that or you shouldn't do that. And I latch onto that kind of stuff and, <laughs> and like, Oh yeah, watch this a little, little counterculture. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, with, the, with the shirt, a lot of times it's working down boards. Like people work down boards sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes within the same set. Uh, Ryan, I think you do that a lot, don't you? We used to. Yeah, used to. Especially breaking stuff in. Like that's how we would always work down boards to break stuff in. Like a three-two-one board in a set or three-two-two yeah. board. Um, but yeah. usually, like I haven't. When I started working with Blaine uh, in 2017, he kind of got me out of the boards. Mm -hmm. So we haven't done a lot of board stuff in shirts for a while, but it's still I think it's still a good tool to learn the groove and the path. But yeah. I would say that's another thing that I uh, I don't know what the word is for it, but um, I never got too much into using boards. Uh, with shirts either um, mm. I would always just kind of bring it down as far as I could and and I know that I got pushed back against that idea as well and and again I think there's valid reasons for that pushback you know that using boards with the bench shirt is a valid tool to to use and it, like individual differences and in individualization of training has kind of become my thing um, the thing that I focus on more than anything else and the board thing fits into that like some people feel like the board gives them a target so they try harder to get a touch you know it, like there's no way that this shirt's going to go all the way to chest level uh, but if i put a one board in there i'll fight to get a touch on that one board you know um, whereas some other people uh, their perception is a little bit different that you know if the board is there they touch the board and they may have been able to go a bit further, you know? Uh, so 
kind of whichever camp you fall into, I think there, there's tools to be used. Um, but that's almost a psychological difference. Yeah. I think the argument I would make is that if the board is there, like a one board is there, yeah, you might touch it, but you won't touch it in a way that you could recover it if it got to your chest. Ah. So you're going to dump, you're going to roll your elbows, you're going to be in a mm -hmm. position where if the bar was to continue further to your chest, you would not be able to press it back up. Yeah. So I think that's the big, it can be a good tool, but I think a lot of times it can also be a bad learning tool because it teaches you to, to, you know, get there. Rely on the board. Even. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, w you know, without regard of actual bottom position. Yeah. Well, that's a good case too for actually touching and training because I know that's something that some people don't agree with, uh, that they feel like, you know, as long as they get close, you know, they don't want to wear out the equipment or something like that. So, you know, if they're within a one board or something like that of touching, that that's good enough. But man, that last, the last couple inches changes everything. Makes know? it a totally different lift. Yeah. Well, it's cool. Like I, I think that's one of the things that I've uh, appreciated about the approach um, that that you and I have taken to to my development in equip lifting. Um, now, when you when you came up with these things, was it a matter of like you know people telling you that you shouldn't do something and then you wanted to try it, or was it more like I don't know? I, I think that you know there's got to be a better way, kind of kind of idea, or like how did you end up kind of coming to these? really sort of counter, uh, counter, we'll call, we'll use counterculture, uh, yeah. ideas. I guess a little bit of both, you know, that I would come across some ideas from reading, uh, and, you know, really kind of by the time we're, we're the time period that we're talking about now, you know, whether it's reading online or reading magazines or whatever, but there, there was a little bit more discussion about, training and equipment and stuff like that in the online space at the time as well. Mm -hmm. um, so interacting with a lot of those different ideas, which most of the stuff that was available on the internet at that time came from multiply training. So that probably gave me a little bit of a different perspective on things as well, because if you were training in a gym with other single ply lifters, then your exposure to information is going to be a little bit different than my exposure to information, which is mostly online and from Multiply, you know, uh, so it was a little bit of that and, and a little bit of, you know, got to be a better way and, and trying to solve problems and, and really it being, you know, I guess I'll keep my old man hat on for a minute, but uh, a quality of the era that sometimes I fear is is lost or at least diminished is that, you know, I felt ownership of, of my own training and my own problems that if I had an issue, you know, like, oh man, I'm having a hard time touching in this, in this shirt. Like, yeah, you can go and get ideas, but if I come up with some idea and, and it sounds like it should probably work, then I'll try it. And I don't need somebody to give me permission to try it. You know, mm -hmm. that it's my training and it seems like a good idea. If, as long as it's not dangerous, then hell, give it a try. And what do you got to lose? You know? Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I worry that that's not as common as it used to be, but that could also just be 
just be a perspective thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, so talking in contrasting like uh, class or raw train, raw coaching versus equipped coaching, is there anything that you kind of, any different variables or anything you kind of take into account when you're, when you're, um, when you're programming for someone, I guess? I think a lot of the processes are, are very similar. Um, it's just that your focus is different, you know, instead of focused on the raw squat, you're focused on the equipped squat and you still treat it as one piece, you know, that, um, it's an equipped squat. And, you know, if you're going to do a weakness analysis on it, then you, you're just looking at a squat and you're analyzing that movement. It doesn't matter that this is an equipped squat. So I need to think more about this or that, like the analysis itself should, should bear that out. Um, so for example, most people will take the, let's take the bench. For example, most people are weaker near the, near the bottom off the chest, uh, when it comes to raw benching, but then you put a bench shirt on and that weakness usually moves up. Uh, you see more lockout issues with shirted benching. Well, if you just watch a video of someone benching and address the weakness where it shows up, then it kind of doesn't matter if it's equipped or raw. I mean, there's other things to consider. Like we said, reps in equipment is is terrible. Uh, so there's also where you might squat raw multiple times a week or bench raw multiple times a week kind of can't do that in equipment for a few reasons and and one is just that it's hard on the skin you know it's just uh, uh you got to give yourself some time to heal from those sessions um so there's some differences like that like it drives a few differences to changes in frequency or or reps or something uh you're a little more constrained in terms of protocols so like I, I like to use different intensities between blocks. So if this block is focused more on say singles, uh, in general, I would like to focus on something else in the next block, but that gets difficult to do uh, with equipped lifting because you do need to focus on singles a lot because as soon as you start doing reps, it gets harder to, to be technically correct uh, in the sense of actually hitting depth or actually touching. Uh, so it's a lot harder to touch a double uh, than it is to touch a single. Uh, so singles need to be a lot more present in equipped lifting, you know, regardless of what we said about uh, reps and stuff like that. The, most of the equipped training is, that I write anyway, is still singles. Um, and it does make it difficult from one block to the next, it, like where do you go from there? Um, if you're raw, then you've got a lot of options, but uh, with equipped, it's a little bit more, it's not that there's nothing you can do about it, but the, your options are a little more constrained. Yeah. Another thing that I think I've heard you say uh, was you used to track your uses in a given piece of equipment, right? Yeah, yeah. So you would, after a certain point, something would be deemed like a, a training shirt as opposed sure. to a meat shirt. Um, we have one last. Do you have any uh, hard time constraints today, by the way, Mike? 
Mm, no, no, not really. Okay. Um, so I think our, our final question before we get into some more like gear specific questions is what is a potato? Was it actually a potato? <laughs> and why is it in your gym? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Fantastic. Um, um, answer the question, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> well, a potato is a plant <laughs> that grows underground. Uh, it's used for food and uh, occasionally lighting light bulbs. Um, you guys know about that, right? <laughs> like the grade school science experiment. Anyway, bad joke. Um, so my daughter, since the quarantine, you know, the kids are home uh, all the time. And so I was, they come out to the garage with me a lot to train. And uh, um, I was getting ready to do a set. And uh, she's sitting there with her little tablet that had some video of singing potatoes. One potato, two potato, three potato, four. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she is, I guess, very excited that she recognized them as potatoes. <laughs> She's two. And uh, she's sitting there going, it's a potato. It, you know, my son's running around like a crazy person. But she's sitting there going, uh, it's a potato. It's a potato. And I'm just, like, it's very distracting. All right. No more. Um, it was very, it was very distracting, and uh, I don't know. I just I'm getting set up, and I just said, "Okay, it's a potato." And as soon as I said that, she stopped, and I did my set, and it was fine. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, fantastic. Yeah, that was probably one of my favorite things that I saw that week. You, yeah. I mean, I want a bowl of grapes too, so. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Snack time. So, the next thing we wanted to talk about was was some like equipment specifics. Um, so, we have a segment we call Gearhead. And we wanted to ask uh, basically about the equipment that you use when you were in equipment. Um, you know, what you like to use, whether stock or custom. Um, sizes if you know it uh just to kind of give people an idea of what people are using what people like and why um and to get into the the sort of equipment itself specifically so let's see uh i used a katana i don't think it was anything special um i don't know if that's coming through maybe i ought to maybe i ought to fix this problem uh, would that be a problem if I no no go, take go. A, no no by all means yeah, take two minutes here sorry yeah, yeah all right snack time seems to be over I did not bring enough to share with the class so oh <laughs> bummer <laughs> so where were we we were talking about equipment um, yeah so like what you wore what you liked about it etc sure. I remember using uh, regular katana uh 48 chest and a 50 sleeve and and i think that was about the only alteration i made to it um i don't know if that's good or if i would do it the same way again 
right. uh, but that's how it was then. Um, I, I know that kind of the prevailing wisdom at the time uh, was that you know the the chest panel needed to be tighter and things like that, which I understand is not the way that things are going anymore. And mm-hmm. if I was to dabble in gear again, I would, I think I would try it. I would try a slightly bigger chest panel and a tighter sleeve and see if that allowed me to stay in position a little bit better. You know, kind of thinking about the, go ahead, Brian. I was gonna say, I think the wording you meant to say was when, not if there. <laughs> true, true. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been known to, to break out the bench shirt now and then, you know, and it's definitely fun. It's a different challenge, you know, but yeah, it, it'd be something that I would be interested in trying, you know, like thinking about, I mentioned earlier, like the deadlift suit and um, my reluctance to try it out. I mean, I did try it out and gave it a real bona fide effort, but ended up never, never really getting anything it helped the deadlift suit helped me pull but it also pulled me out of position so that i was not in a stronger position and the net effect ended up being i deadlifted about the same with worse mechanics in the deadlift suit so i just never fully adopted it mm-hmm. i felt something like that in the bench that you know you i was never able to quite get as much of an archer in my shoulder blades quite as much as I wanted to um, with the bench shirt on. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the way that I was sizing my shirts or not. Uh, but, you know, I would definitely try something a little bit different there. I don't remember too much about sizing from for the squat suit, but it was a, a Centurion. Uh, so use Titan gear for pretty much the my whole equipped time you know pete was always really good to me at titan and uh um, really went above and beyond (laughs) i remember you know uh when i first picked up that sponsorship again to being kind of young and dumb and not really understanding what was going on you know he's like hey just send me a list of stuff and i'll send it to you and so man i sent a effing christmas list to pete and uh like they included stuff like a like a boss a multiply squat suit and stuff like that like hey yeah i'll I'll try it out you know man he was he was always uh very generous and accommodating and i mean there's another thing i I wouldn't play the same way again (laughs) wouldn't wouldn't try to wear out my welcome at least but uh uh yeah yeah so going back to your uh tracking of uses in equipment do you remember what you kind of looked at as far as like the 30th time I use a bench shirt or what well, oh, do you remember kind of for me I, I think on the bench shirt it was probably closer to the fifth or sixth time um and Man, then in the squat you, you did, you, it was like a ninth time you, you know? must have really worn up your welcome with, with yeah. <laughs> I got six uses out of a bench shirt <laughs> well not too bad because I kept them all you know and so even after like I, I found like my best sessions were on say the, the fifth or sixth session, but uh, uh, it was still useful and and definitely useful for 
far after that, you know? And I mean, I've said this before too, if, if I was going to start taking a quick lifting seriously again, I would buy a sewing machine and figure out how to do my own alterations. Cause I think one, I would get a lot more out of the equipment. And I think that's just a, a really interesting aspect of the game that I haven't dabbled in at all, you know, the alterations piece, but then the materials piece as well, that you have this material that does stretch, you know, it stretches a little bit and, and over time, you, you know, it fits a little bit looser, but as you get some of that stretch out of the material, it's not like it's just going to keep on stretching forever. Mm-hmm. You know, at some point, it, you're going to kind of hit bottom on on the elasticity of the material. And, and I wonder what that does. What's that like? You know, so it would be fun to tinker with some of the the alteration stuff, like both in terms of fit and in terms of like uh, uh, just the material properties, you know. Yeah. That was actually the next thing we were going to ask was whether or not you did your own modifications. And if so, like what you liked to, you know, whether you're a tight sleeves or tight straps or you, you didn't do any of your own modifications from the sounds of it. No, no. Uh, okay. So we'll, I can, we kind of covered a lot of, uh, gear stuff there. I think, um, the, uh, we'll move on to some questions from listeners and in kind of essence of, of time here, we'll just kind of narrow down to like the most important one I have. Uh, and that is, is, is being on an equipped powerlifting podcast, your official announcement that he's coming out of equipment retirement. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's from Rhea, just so you know, she, she said we'd keep working on you cause she says she's in working on you. Yeah. Well, coming back to world games, 2022. It's mm-hmm. like the first rule of improv here. is to, to, you don't say no. And yes. Improv. And yeah, so. Uh, I, I would like to, um, so kind of the backstory on that is, uh, um, I started getting this hip pain that, you know, caused me to take a step back from competing in general. Uh, I found that I was able to, uh, <laughs> found I was able to, there's a potato by the way, um, <laughs> I found I was able to train equipped squatting and it was fine. So that's good news, but deadlifting, there wasn't really much way around that. Um, I did a block of equipped training. I intended to go to uh, the U.S. Nationals and stuff like that a few years ago, and then had a family emergency that prevented that. But uh, uh, it's definitely not off the, uh, not off the the radar, you know. But uh, I would want to. I guess just feel good about doing the movements. Uh, feel like I'm not causing myself any any kind of harm. Uh, if I can do that, then yeah, I'd definitely be back. I mean, to get another shot at going to a World Games. I mean, especially now, like I said in the beginning, like I, I feel like I almost didn't sufficiently appreciate it at the time. Uh, so the prospect of going back and and you know bringing a, a more mature uh, eyes open attitude to it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people, including myself, who would be pretty excited about that prospect. And also the prospect of maybe competing against one another. See, that, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. So you think it would be cool. I've had other people <laughs> who uh, tell me that 
they they don't want that and uh i had so for a while there i mean i've, I've been dropping some body weight you know I'm, yeah not for any specific reason but just that that didn't seem like a, a real great reason for me to weigh 270 pounds you know just for no reason um so I've just been getting gradually leaner for kind of a long time but at this point you know my my weight's getting down a little bit and i had some lifters in the 105 class who were who were like don't do it man don't come back here at 105 <laughs> and, and you know i didn't really give it much thought but after they said that i did <laughs> well i'm all for it if you want to come up to the 120s hey i, I, I think, think it'd i think cool. it'd be cool well it wouldn't be come up to i i still I still would be a 120. I'm not quite quite that light, but uh, yeah. <laughs> we want some more grapes. Want some more grapes? That's yeah. Fair. I'm gonna have to send your uh, whoever edits this. I'm gonna have to send them a bottle of something. I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's just Ryan, so. Yeah, it's just me, so. Oh, so more fives then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He'll take those. As I'll take fives and Bulgarian split squats. That's what I'll take. Yeah, as a gift. Everyone's favorite. Right? As long <laughs> as it's not fifteens, I, I mean. Yeah, you push that pretty hard. You, pu- you push the the higher up stuff pretty damn hard, man. Just on the squats, but I'm disappointed. <laughs> I thought I could get up to, to five hundred for ten. I'd be happy there. And yeah. Then we decided to swap back, so it's okay. Maybe, maybe we can do some rep blocks at some point. Yeah, let's, let's not write any checks. Gotten yourself <laughs> into now, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I keep my mouth shut sometimes. <laughs> so we're just gonna dive into a couple of the common questions that we ask everybody, uh, and then we'll wrap it up and and let you go here. Um, but I wanted to ask uh, out of these questions about some of your your biggest inspirations now they don't need to be uh powerlifters necessarily they could be thinkers or people uh outside of powerlifting in your life but what what has kind of driven you throughout your uh your powerlifting career as a as a lifter or as a coach even uh, and who has kind of inspired you i mean there's a lot who have you know learned a lot from and been inspired by and you know people that I wish more people knew about, you know, and, uh, uh, things like that. I, you know, talked to about kind of my uh, having a lot of non-success in my early days. Uh, I would say Matt Gary helped me out a lot with, uh, being more consistent and uh, kind of understanding more about how to be more consistent and, and valuing that, you know, so he was really helpful. Uh, to me, uh, he actually coached me. Uh, he was my handler at the uh, the World Games as well. So oh, okay. that was kind of our first interaction, really working together. And and uh, I would say he's been a big influence on me, powerlifting wise, you know, ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, kind of more broadly, and and speaking at, at this point in my lifting career progression, lifting life, even. Um, Bryce, something you and I have talked about in the past has been uh, stoicism, 
And um, just the, now you say that, and, and I think a lot of people get a wrong impression about it right off the bat. Like, it was just something that, it, it's, the way, the way that it mattered to me tangibly, I guess, uh, in my lifting was that, like, even, even during the, the heights of my competitive career, you know, I had this understanding that this is not forever, that some, at some point I'm going to have to stop competing. I'm going to want to stop competing mm-hmm. uh, sooner or later, surely, you know, uh, and if that happens, then what? You know, who am I as a person? How does my business thrive? You know, just that's a process that had to be worked through uh, little by little uh, over the course of some years. And it's not like I spent a lot of time just pondering, you know, or anything like that. But just uh, you think about it from time to time and and not run away from the thought, you know. Yeah. That it was an uncomfortable thought, so you'd sit with it for a little while. I mean, not unlike how you do with an exercise. So if you, you know, you notice that, like, man, I'm way worse at Bulgarian split squats than all my friends, you know, then maybe there's something to be learned there. Maybe I ought to spend a little more time on it kind of thing, right? Right. Not completely different from <laughs> that kind of thing. Sorry, pick on Bulgarian split squats, but it's just the first thing that popped in my head. Hey, look, if your friends are making fun of you for your Bulgarian split squats, yeah, they're not your friends. <laughs> you need new friends, yeah. That's right. Yeah. They need to rethink their life choices. Right? That's right. <laughs> if they're that good at them, yeah. Right, cool. Use both um, your legs, weirdos. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, so that's that's a line of thinking that has been influential on me especially as it relates to to lifting yeah. i mean i'm sure there's a, a lot of others and it's i think a lot of times it's difficult to uh, point back to those formative events you know and and i think through conversation a lot of times they'll come up um, but it's hard to like we all have attitudes about different things like how should a lifter act how should a, a boss act? How should a, a, a friend act? And the, those models are informed by something, but a lot of times it takes some pretty pretty intense conversation for us to be able to bring that out. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, that, like, I remember a lot of times, you know, negative experiences are pretty powerful. You know, and I remember... Uh, my dad used to travel with me to competitions and help handle me and stuff like that. And, and those are some really special memories that, that I've got. Uh, and, and I'm really grateful that he did that. Um, you know, nowadays he doesn't like to travel as much and, you know, he's, um, would just kind of prefer to be at home and that's fine. Um, but I'm grateful that he traveled when he did. Uh, but I do remember one year, uh, sitting in like kind of the the backstage area at collegiate nationals, you know, waiting for my my attempt. And this kid who was in front of me by a couple lifters, you know, his dad was there handling him. And uh, he's sitting there in the chair, and his he's got his headphones on, and his dad's holding the CD player, you know, and he's getting himself real fired up for this squat, and 
he gets up uh, and the wire from his headphones pulls the CD player uh, out of his dad's hands on the floor. And I, he picks up the CD player and like threw it at his dad and went out and did a squat. And I mean, I know I'm not saying like this dude is a bad person or anything. I know he's just jacked up. And but I thought like, man, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be so jacked up and so in the moment that I act like an asshole to the people around me. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that informs some decisions that you make about, you know, how do you act when you're, when you're right there uh, that hyped up, you know, and that yeah. kind of starts to form some of the model of, of how you are and how you behave. So um, I, I guess that's a bit off topic, <laughs> but no, I think, one thing I think like mind, that, yeah. that answers the question. I mean, it doesn't, like I said, it doesn't have to be, lifters and maybe it doesn't have to be people right because like you yeah. you kind of illustrated there a lot of times it's it's experiences that that sort of form and sure. shape these things for us yeah and it happens slowly over long periods of time too that you know i mean that's something that kind of comes up a lot you know as you just interact with people over the years is that the, the person that you are today isn't going to be the same person that you are in five years or 10 years, or at least you hope not. And the mm-hmm. same goes for other people too. That the kind of person that they are now is not the same as the, as they'll be later. No, I think that's good. Like we have some other questions, but I think that's just a really good ending point. Like, yeah, I don't know. It's a real positive kind of look at how lifting is lifting, but it's so much more about, the experience, the, the, you know, the time spent with family or, or stuff like that. Right. The lifting yeah. is, is almost just like a, a vehicle towards that. So yeah. yeah, I think that's really, yeah, really cool. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. So thanks cool. guys. Thanks for well, bearing thanks. with me through my, uh, uh, absolutely man. Family events. here. <laughs> absolutely. I, I would, I would do it again. And I think it's absolutely worth it to, to be able to uh for you to let us take up some of your time and and to chat with us because i think there's a lot that uh a lot that you have to share that uh hopefully a lot of people who are thinking about and getting into equipped lifting will will consider yeah right on man that's so thanks again for your really time enjoy your all's uh podcast and um i hope you guys keep doing it and hope that the uh, equipped side of things continues to you know come back and and flourish yeah Cool. So do we. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Thank you, guys. See you later. Take care. See you, Mike. All right. We want to thank you for listening to the Equipped, Bruised, and Tired podcast. We're going to be available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are found. So make sure to leave your five-star rating if you enjoyed the show and a review as well and or check out our video version of the show on our YouTube channel. If you have any questions for ourselves, guest suggestions, or questions for our guests, you can go ahead and contact us at equippedbruisedtired at gmail.com and make sure to do your part to spread the word of the equipped renaissance. We'll see you next time.